When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Emily Wilkins. We've got Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, on with us. And we're going to get a call shortly uh, from Congressman Carlos Jimenez, Republican from South Florida. Really good to to get him on the phone briefly uh, to talk infrastructure and everything else. First, you know, this just popped up, so I'll I'll, I'll throw my script out immediately. And uh, as Charlie mentioned, the, uh, the income tax returns for the president and vice president uh, shows dropping incomes in 2020. I, I don't know if that makes them more relatable. I, I guess that is not necessarily uh, surprising, but we see Joe Biden's income falling to a pretty substantial $607,000 in 2020, a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, we see uh, Biden and the First Lady Jill Biden paying 157000 in federal income taxes. You know, we always want to see these numbers uh, on on the president and vice president and the the first lady's income coming in, uh, I'm I'm always curious though with Joe Biden, Jeannie, does his middle class appeal stand up as as much as it used to when you see the the president who has a, a salary of four hundred thousand making six hundred thousand that was lower than it previously had been. Uh, but what does what does this mean, Jeannie, when we see these numbers falling in twenty twenty? You know, I, I think it does show that prior to coming into office, he was making money as many former politicians do on the speaking circuit. And so that is something that can, you know, make people feel like, a, you know, a, a little bit of a red flag if you're selling yourself as a, you know, as you mentioned, sort of middle class Joe. That said, of course, he's not making or he was not making nearly as much of some other public officials, members of the Senate in particular, also our former president, although, you know, we're still not quite clear on the income there. So, you know, I do think it's important that that people are paid by the public. And as they come into office, we understand where their income has been coming as they're making policy that can impact those sources of income. 
Right. Well, at least we have the numbers. I guess that's one way to start off the show. <laughs> now, I believe we have Congressman Carlos Jimenez joining us, a Republican from South Florida. I'm looking at the Florida's 26th district, the area south of Miami. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. I keep telling my bosses, you got to send me down there to have an in-person interview in the congressman's district, potentially on a beach. Uh, but getting you on the phone is is also very nice. Thank you for joining us, Congressman. It's uh, it's my pleasure. Whenever you want, we can go down into the Keys and uh, we can uh, have a nice interview um, as at, by the beach or wherever you want. Okay. All, all right. Uh, now, I, I am I am really glad to have you on, partly because you're on the infrastructure committee in the House, uh, and we've heard all this back and forth between the president and Senate Republicans, uh, the Senate being traditionally, uh, I guess, more bipartisan than the House. But I'm, I'm curious what you see your role as. We're going to hear, apparently, from Senate Republicans sometime early this week on a counteroffer that they sent to the president. But do you have an opportunity to shape this infrastructure bill, if it really is a bipartisan bill, what's your role going to be, and how early do you get in on this process to to shape that bill? Well, I hate to I hate to throw you know what towel at this, but it really all depends. If, if the Democrats feel that they have 218 votes in the House, then uh, the the role for the Republicans is going to be limited, like it's been limited for the entire entire time we've been here. Uh, a lot of bills have just not even gone through committee. They go right to the floor, and it's uh, up or down, and it's usually a straight party line vote uh, with very little, you know, uh, talking back and forth. And so, you know, this infrastructure bill, I hope it's a little bit different. I know that there are some Democrats that are not really happy about some of the uh, proposals of the president, uh, hiking taxes, et cetera, um, you know, things that may not be and are not uh, considered infrastructure as part of this $2.3 trillion. And so... Let's see what happens in the Senate, and if the Senate uh, is uh, going, you know, back and forth, and it's not quite the 2.3 trillion dollars, then maybe we can have a voice here on on the House side. Well, I guess my real question then, Congressman, is: Do you think it's worth having these bipartisan talks? Especially, you know, last week we we heard from Senator Roger Wicker after one of these meetings saying it was pretty clear that the president is going to try to do something bipartisan on infrastructure at first, but then Democrats can always do something partisan after that, and they can use the budget reconciliation process to get something through the Senate on maybe the leftovers. Do you? How invested are you on, in working with Democrats on this, and is it worth it to make a bunch of concessions if Democrats are going to then just try to get everything they want in a partisan way afterward in a subsequent bill? No, I think I think it's worth to say. Look, this is this is the kind of bill that we want to present that to the American people, um, and then if the Democrats want to go at it on their own and and pass their version, then they pass their version. I mean, that's what the majority holding the majority is all about. I mean, you know, we thought that coming into this Congress with the Democrats holding a five or six seat, you know, majority, that uh, hey, there would be a lot more room for back and forth. Uh, between Democrats and Republicans and really come to some kind of consensus, you know, compromise. That's what uh, what ho- hopefully was democracy is all about. But uh, that's not hasn't been the case. Uh, I got to take my hat off to the, the speaker. She has held her her conference with an iron fist. Uh, there's only been I, be, I believe in, in the time I've been here, there's only been a couple, couple of Democrats that have ever crossed the and voted no on a Democrat sponsored bill. And that was the COVID relief package, where I believe two of them voted against the COVID relief package. Every, outside of that, everything has been, you know, she's held uh, her her uh, conference pretty tight. And so, again, I think it's a good exercise. I hope, hope we can get to it. 
and uh, and then come come back and give our our version. This is what we want to do. Now Republicans are we are willing to sit down and we we also believe that there is a need for infrastructure. We need infrastructure for our roads. We need infrastructure for our bridges, traditional infrastructure, and then maybe some non-traditional infrastructure. I'd like to see money invested in bringing back companies to to the uh, United States, companies that are critical to our supply chain. Um, and I think that that is, you know, I can consider that infrastructure. And then also get that will also, you know, fairly pay for itself uh, versus, you know, some of the stuff that uh, that uh, the Democrats want to do that in the end is just going to call, you know, our children and our grandchildren are going to end up paying for what they call infrastructure far into the future. Congressman Emily Wilkins here. I wanted to ask, since we're on the topic of voting and what bills can pass, this week the House is set to vote on a commission to examine the riots in the Capitol on January 6th after a major breakthrough last week where the top Democrat and Republican on the Homeland Security Committee finally came to an agreement as to what the commission should look like. Now the House needs to vote on it. The rioters, they said that they were trying to stop the process of certifying the electoral college votes. You yourself did vote against certifying the vote for Arizona and Pennsylvania. At this point, are you planning to vote for the commission to look into the January 6th riots? Well, I got to look into the, the details of it. John Katko and I are, are, are very good friends, and I respect him uh, tremendously. Uh, he had We've had some back and forth um, uh, text messages between he and, and Homeland Security, you know, members. And so I'll, I'll look at, the, at it and then see if, uh, if it's, uh, if he's, he's, uh, you know, he says that we got a lot out of it. And if that's the case, then, you know, I have no problem in examining and examining, you know, what caused it, what happened also, why, why, how in the world, you know, people got access to the Capitol, you know, uh, we need to look also at, at uh, what was the posture, who, who, uh, what were the, the rules of engagement that were given to Capitol Police and others? What, what, what about communications uh, with different agencies? Was there a breakdown there? Or was there never really a good plan for communicating? Because, look, I was mayor of Miami-Dade County, and, uh, and I was an in, I've been an incident commander basically for all of my life. I was a firefighter. I was a fire chief. Uh, I was a city manager and then uh, finally mayor, strong mayor of Miami-Dade County. I was also the sheriff of Miami-Dade County as being the mayor. And so I understand, you know, incident command. And so for me, it's it's uh, something that I, I really want to take a look at and see what exactly happened, what caused it, um, you know, and then and go forward. But, you know, I've got to take a look at the details before I commit to, uh, to saying yes or no to that. And by the way, when I voted against Arizona and Pennsylvania, that would not have turned over the results. The results would have been the same. Joe Biden it still would have been the president of the United States. So I didn't vote to overturn the election. I just had problems with those two states. Unlike in 2005, when a number of Democrats wanted to overturn, or overturn Ohio, and that would have actually changed the outcome of that election. So, you know, I think we need to be, be consistent in, uh, in how we uh, phrase things. Congressman, I, I want to make sure I get in a question on the, the probably the biggest story of the day on the Israel-Palestine conflict. I really want to know, I, I saw you put out a statement, I, I saw it on Twitter, on the U.S. standing with Israel, but is there any degree to which you think the U.S. government has a role in trying to lower the temperature, push back at all on an ally? You know, there's there's uh, some pushback from the left on a weapons sale to Israel. Is there is there any way you think the U.S. government has a role to try to uh, to pull them back a bit? I think the U.S. government has a role in, in the region and has to, you know, try to um, 
bring peace and stability to the region. I just, you know, I, I think it's it's an interesting coincidence, I guess, that uh, 100 days into a new administration, we were ending up with this kind of uh, fighting going on in Israel. And for some time before it, it wasn't. It's probably, my thought is, that the United States, when they stand firmly behind Israel, it it is a disincentive for, for Hamas or Hezbollah to take them on because the United States is firmly behind Israel. Look, in this case, this was uh, this started out as an, an eviction notice uh, on on a number of Palestinian you know families, and it, this was a, right. a conflict that had been going on for 50 years. Congressman, I hate to cut you off. Thank you so much for joining us, Carlos Jimenez, Congressman from Florida. We'll be right back and keep talking about that. Jack Fitzpatrick with Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Here with Bloomberg government congressional reporter Jack Fitzpatrick and Bloomberg politics, politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno. We just heard from Florida Republican Congressman Carlos Jimenez. Last week, he introduced a House resolution condemning the terrorist attacks by Hamas against the state of Israel and to reaffirm congressional support for the U.S.-Israeli alliance. More than 60 lawmakers have signed on to that resolution so far. But Democrats are also pressuring Biden at this point, particularly some progressive Democrats who are more sympathetic to Palestinians. Uh, We actually had Senator Bernie Sanders in a New York Times op-ed come out with some really strong words for uh, prime Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He criticized Netanyahu's behavior as undemocratic and racist and said he was marginalizing and demonizing Palestinian citizens. Uh, Jeannie, it sounds like there are sort of very strong opinions on, on both sides. I, I don't think that's a big surprise with this particular issue. What kind of pressure is President Biden under at this point to, to address the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I thought it was a fascinating uh, response to Jack's and your questions about Israel um, from the congressman, because, of course, as you mentioned, uh, their colleagues in the House and the Senate, the Democrats, are fractured. And as you mentioned, putting some pressure on President Biden. But what I didn't hear the congressman talk about was the fact that during the Trump administration, the U.S. essentially checked out of the process of being 
a moderating force who could talk to both sides, both, you know, the, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so they've left the Biden administration in this position of really having their arms tied. It's going to take a long time for the secretary of state, for the president, for the administration as a whole, for the United States to become that sort of moderate broker again. And with this fracturing of the Democratic Party, I think there are big questions as to whether a Democratic administration now can do that. And certainly a Republican administration, just the previous one at least, checked out of that role. So to me, I think the United States in a very tough position here. Well, Jeannie, I I was getting, I guess, a little confused during the congressman's answer because he did sort of pivot to a, oh, we're in in the early stages of this Democratic administration and things are getting bad. It was maybe a bit of a a partisan answer there, but I'm, I'm not sure how partisan this is going to be as it plays out. For one, it's not just the Bernie Sanders types who are getting outspoken on this. There was a letter with 29 Senate Democrats. They are Democrats, but that's the majority of the Senate Democratic caucus calling for a ceasefire. And then we actually saw that uh, statement yesterday from Senators Chris Murphy and Todd Young, the Republican from Indiana, uh, using a both sides language, saying both sides must recognize that too many lives have been lost, sort of sharing blame with Israel. Uh, What is your take on, is this absolutely a partisan issue where Republicans are going to hammer away at Biden, or is there any chance that Republicans say, look, we we agree that Israel shares some responsibility despite the political risks of calling out an ally? I don't think, you know, my view, at least at this point, we haven't heard many Republicans take the view that they are going to hold Israel responsible in, to any stretch of the imagination. So haven't heard that yet. Um, you know, I am not even sure that I would define this purely as a partisan issue. I think these are long entrenched views and put really the Biden administration in a very difficult predicament. You know, I was hearing just before we came on the air the air that the Secretary of State had said that he still had not seen evidence from Israel about the hit on the AP Al Jazeera building that got so much coverage. So, you know, the security and and what they were looking for in terms of whether, in fact, they had, you know, grounds to do that. I think that, to me, was a big statement on Anthony Blinken's part to say, we want evidence to support the claim that there was Hamas operating in that building and didn't see it yet. So, you know, they are in a tough predicament, and I think that Republicans are sticking to where they have been for some time, but I think it's this progressive Democrats that are moving even further from where they were during, say, the Obama administration, when I think, at least in my view, we started to see this movement towards publicly supporting the Palestinians. We have news right now just crossing the terminal. President Biden spoke this afternoon with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, in which the President Biden called, expressed his support for a ceasefire. Uh, They also discussed U.S. engagement with Egypt and other partners. Um, The president, this is kind of along the lines with what we've already heard from President Biden to a certain extent, calling for peace in the region, calling for both sides to to end this conflict peacefully. I mean, Jeannie, I think you really made an interesting point there in sort of how Biden is, is holding the line in a sense. But you've seen progressives sort of go ahead and move a little further to the left. We have just a, a, a 10, 10, 
30 or so seconds here. But how do you think this is going to play out with progressives and Biden? Will they eventually convince Biden too to sort of move more to the Palestinian support side of things? I, I, I think he will publicly continue this line where Israel has a, a right to defend itself, but publicly also say, please move towards a ceasefire and let's get some of our partners in there, as you mentioned, Egypt and others, to broker a ceasefire. ceasefire. To me, the question is what happens after that? Absolutely. Well, this is a story we will definitely be continuing to following. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm here with Bloomberg government reporter Emily Wilkins and Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. Jeannie, I've got to double back on the big news that just just popped up on the Bloomberg terminal. President Biden expressed his support for a ceasefire in a call today, this afternoon, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I have been trying to figure out, you know, especially earlier today when White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about this issue and, she, you know, she wouldn't use the word disproportionate. She was asked if the White House thinks this is disproportionate and that they're being so careful with the exact phrasing that they use, what would offend an ally and all of that. Jeannie, how significant is it for the president just to to say a ceasefire would be a good idea? Is that uh, a really significant step forward? How careful is he being right now? They are being careful. And, and, and I heard Jen Psaki as well. And, and the president has been asked about this question about the disproportionate response in the New York Times this morning, for instance. They were talking about war crimes in terms of the disproportionate response of Israel, but also, of course, from the Gaza side, the Palestinian side as well. So it's something the president is going to be asked as these absolutely horrendous pictures keep coming through. And so I think it is significant that today he said to, you know, arguably our closest ally, if not one of the closest, that we've got to broker a ceasefire here. And I don't think we can let the domestic side of this go unstated in terms of Benjamin Netanyahu's position in Israel, fragile as it was before this started, and also in terms of Hamas. You know, people keep saying, and I think it's worth underscoring, Netanyahu and Hamas are the political winners of a horrific, horrific violence over the last week. And the president is going to have to deal with that. But given it's our closest ally, he's got to do it very, very carefully. So I, one other thing I, I thought was really interesting from our interview early with earlier with Congressman Carlos Jimenez was his kind of uh, laid back answer on infrastructure. Uh, you know, I, I asked, what does it mean for a Republican if it appears that Democrats are likely to, A, work with you on a bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill, but then try to get everything else they wanted in a more partisan way? Uh, in, a, in a subsequent bill, as Roger Wicker, a Senate Republican who met with the president last week, said. Um, I, I, I was a little surprised that uh, the congressman didn't seem to mind and said, well, we can work with them and it, it, that's not going to throw us off. Emily, what did you make of that uh, shrug of the shoulders from the congressman saying, well, Democrats can try to do whatever they want later? And I think one of the key things here is to remember that this is a House Republican. And there's something that Chuck Schumer um, has said a couple of times, that if you sort of look at the 
four quadrants of Congress, Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats, House Republicans, House Democrats. The worst one to be in is the House minority. Yeah. And so to a certain extent, you've seen about all these bipartisan discussions with President Biden. Those are all senators. So I think for a certain extent, uh, people like the congressman, they are sort of in the waiting to see what happens with the Senate. If the Senate's able to go through with something, then maybe the House Republicans can get a little bit more engaged. But at this point, I mean, there doesn't need to be a single House Republican to pass an infrastructure bill. It's all in the Senate where you need those 10 Republicans to sign on for anything. Now, another big piece of news today was on vaccine sharing. The news that came out earlier today that the U.S. is going to take 20 million doses of not AstraZeneca, but the vaccines that were planned to use in, to be used in the U.S., Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and that's in addition to 80 million uh, AstraZeneca shots. It makes me think that maybe this is a, a really significant uh, reflection of where the U.S. is uh, in terms of we're actually at the point where we, we can't get them all out the door here. We might as well give some away. Or, or am I overstating that, Jeannie? What does this say when we're giving away the vaccines that that we could have used here in the U.S. that were approved for the the U.S. use uh, to other countries. You know, I think it says um, that the United States has to play catch up with places like China. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we accounted for over a quarter of the world's vaccine production but zero of the supply to other countries or beyond our own borders. And many, many people were saying that has got to change. And so, you know, I think it's important as we compete with China to understand that they were one of one of the big countries who had gotten a real head start on that vaccine diplomacy, as it's called. So, Emily, I wanted to ask you from your perspective, has the Biden is, is the Biden administration a little bit too late on this? And can they make the case this is in the United States best interest, as Jack mentioned, to send our vaccine that can be used here to other parts of the world? I think that's a really good question. I mean, when President Biden today, he really got into the specifics of the U.S.'s first foray into vaccine diplomacy today. Let's listen to the sound we've got on that. This means over the next six weeks, the United States of America will send 80 million doses overseas. That represents 13 percent of the vaccines produced by the United States by the end of June. This will be more vaccines than any country has actually shared to date, five times more than any other country. And so I think it's sort of interesting with Biden pointing that out, that yes, in a sense, the U.S. is late to the game. China's already been sending out vaccines for months, as well as other countries. But Biden is trying to make the case that the U.S. is going to be sending out more. And I think to a certain extent as well, you know, you still have uh, the virus really causing havoc in a number of other countries. You saw that giant outbreak in India. You're now seeing concerns about that strain going in the U.K. So I think at this point, to a sense, the U.S. might be late later to the game, but I think there's still a potential chance that the U.S. is not fully late to the game. Also want to touch on, since we're on President Biden, want to touch very quickly on something he said today that we're going to have big news domestically. Uh, he's announcing that 
in July and the 15th of the month and every month thereafter that those with children will get at least 250 per child per month, a direct deposit into their account. Jack, what does this mean for Americans? Well, I think the biggest part of that is actually the announcement from the IRS that most of the families eligible are going to get this automatically and not even have to sign up for that. That's a big uh, legislative priority for Democrats, but now a lot of people are going to get potentially thousands of dollars in tax credit automatically. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick and joining us as always is Ace Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. Well, hey, a a headline crossing the terminal right now. Four Senate Republicans are set to meet tomorrow with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. This is part of that group that met with President Biden the other week. They're working on negotiating the traditional infrastructure part of the plan, so the roads, the highways, the airports. We are expecting soon to see an update from this group. They had a proposal that they put out last month. They've now met with Biden and are planning to update that proposal. But we want to check in with one of those Republicans, Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey. Earlier today, he spoke with our colleague David Weston. Now, Toomey, he's retiring when his term ends in 2022, but we have the sound on his prediction about the future of the Republican Party and its ties to former President Trump. Most of us learned in school uh, that the Republic functions best when it has a loyal opposition. Yeah. Uh, it's better for the Biden administration if it's got a loyal opposition really challenging it. Right now, that opposition seems a little bit fractured, maybe more than a little bit fractured, actually. Give us a sense of your party right now, particularly what happened on the other side of Capitol Hill with Liz Cheney. Where is that your party going? Where should it be going? Well, so there's uh, certainly there are tensions and rifts within our party. But I like to step back for a second and remember, you know, one of the unusual aspects of the American system, unusual among republics, is that we've basically divided our political spectrum into two big coalitions, one led by the Democratic Party, the other led by the Republican Party. And so there are always differences of opinions within a coalition that's as big and broad. And by the way, the Democrats have it every bit as much as we do. And if you consider the radical left wing in the Democratic Party against the, compared to the more traditional Democrats. So, so we've got that. Um, and we're going to have to figure out our path forward. And I, and I think one of the areas that's going to be um, very vigorously debated among Republicans is whether we adhere to a traditional, basically libertarian economic approach, or we go down the road of a, a more populist approach. Um, President Trump clearly was a populist, not an economic libertarian. He was a protectionist, not a free trader. Uh, he was in favor of lots of big government spending, where most conservatives get a little concerned about that. And there are people in the party who saw his success in 2016 and decided that that's the route forward. I don't think that's best for our coalition. I don't think it's best for the country to have those policies. I don't think it maximizes economic growth. I don't think it maximizes opportunity. But that's, that's a big debate we're going to have within the party. But to be very clear, do you believe the Republican Party can win in 2022 and then 2024 without Donald J. Trump being at the head, if not actually on the ticket, sort of the de facto leader of the party? Oh, I, 
I, I don't think he will be seen as the de facto leader of the party, uh, certainly not by 2024. Um, and in 2022, I think we've got a very good shot at winning. Remember, in the 2020 election, down-ballot candidates did better than Donald Trump almost everywhere. And in a swing state like mine, it was very much the case. We won statewide row offices that we haven't won in many, many years. We increased our majority in the state house. We held our majority in the state senate. We held all our Republican um, congressional seats. Um, so, and and I do think the Biden administration is overreaching and it's going too far left. And so the traditional reaction of the American people when there's unified government with one party and they overreach is to rein them in. So that's no guarantee, but it, it is uh, a reason that I'm optimistic that the 2022 cycle will go well for Republicans. You know, it's so interesting to hear Senator Toomey saying this less than a week after his House colleagues ousted Congresswoman Liz Cheney from the number three position because she repeatedly butted heads with Trump over the outcome of the 2020 election. Uh, Jeannie, read the tea leaves here for us. Why have we seen the House and the Senate take such different paths when it comes to the future of Trump and the party? And what does that tell us for what the future of Republicans will look like? The differences in terms of the makeup of the House and the Senate structurally, right? The fact that members of the House have to serve two years and then run for re-election, which means, as you and Jack know, they are continually running for re-election. And I think, uh, you know, I think Toomey is right to be optimistic about Republicans, um, you know, potentially doing very well in 22. History tells us that. The census numbers were on their side. The reapportionment that's likely to occur as a result, mostly in the hands of Republicans. I think for, as a Political scientist, what's a bit frustrating to me is there's very little talk about revising what is driving all this, and that is the fact we rely on primaries. Most of these Republicans in office don't feel that Joe Biden is, you know, uh, not the president. They don't feel the election was stolen. They're saying this because they have to run in primaries in which the more extreme members of their parties will be voting. That's no way to run a democracy, but there's very little discussion of that. You know, there a couple things really stood out to me from that interview. One, uh, Toomey laid out uh, sort of an opposition to Trump. He called him out on big government spending and said he, he's not a free trader. There's an ideological argument pretty much against Trump as the head of the Republican Party. But one thing I've been trying to figure out, and I really am curious, Jeannie, what you make of this, is nobody treated John McCain like this after 2008. You know, the, the Republicans in the recent past have successfully transitioned to a minority party that's positioned to bounce back successfully as they did in 2010 after 2008 went badly for them. And I just am confused by a party losing the majority, losing the House, Senate, and White House, and then rallying around one head of party figure rather than, as they did leading up to 2010, a grassroots approach. Whatever you think about the Tea Party, that helped Republicans bounce back very quickly after losing. Can you explain to me, I, I mean, is this a party, Jeannie, that just uh, it doesn't, it wasn't prepared to go into the minority? Or how, I'm, I'm confused about their strategy uh, becoming a minority party and trying to bounce back. 
You're right to bring up the the ideological fissure, which is, which is real. You know, my reading of this is that the members feel that Donald Trump is still popular in their districts. And again, they have to run in primaries. They have to raise money to win these primaries in order to win their districts. I think that's what's explaining this. A lot of people talk about Trump and a cult of personality. But the fact is, he is the, the, I, the thinking is he remains popular. But there's some evidence he's not. You know, look at the RNCC not giving its own members numbers which show his decline in support in key districts. So I think it's a big question mark. I do think Republicans do well in 2022, but I think it's in spite of Trump and not because of him. Absolutely. Well, hey, it is 5.53 p.m. It is Monday. Congratulations. You've made it through the first day of the week. Uh, hopefully everyone had a good weekend and managed to stay more dry than Jack and I did. We went to a <laughs> colleague of ours uh, going away party. Bon voyage, Sean. We'll miss you. Uh, and we both got uh, slightly drizzled on on our route there. Uh, but you know what? That's behind us. We survived and we are looking forward to the week ahead. Uh, Jack, we've got Congress's in session. Obviously, always a lot going on with President Biden. What are you keeping an eye on in the upcoming week? Yeah, so I think this is going to be a busy upcoming week because Congress is supposed to leave soon after this week. So they try to cram everything at the end of uh, their voting period. On Wednesday, the House is supposed to vote on this January 6th commission, this bipartisan commission that there was, uh, I guess, a handshake deal on in a bipartisan way among House members. And then the next day on Thursday, they're supposed to vote on this capital security bill. Uh, for anybody listening in the D.C. area, I know this is such a local issue, but it's they're not doing a permanent fence as part of this bill. It's a retractable fence or pop-in fencing, but they've got a bill to try to uh, bolster security in, in Congress. One interesting thing, though, is this really has been led by the House, and uh, it seems that there has not been a ton of communication, even with Senate Democrats. We've heard from the Senate Appropriations Chairman, who's in charge of spending over there, Patrick Leahy, saying, I'd like to see this commission go through before we redo security at the Capitol. So it, it, it's got a little bit of a muddled path forward. But this January 6th stuff is going to be very interesting this week. Yeah, and, you know, it's taken them so many months to actually get to this point, even though, Jack, as you correctly point out, the path forward isn't clear. At least we have finally seen some progress here after just months and months of hitting the wall. Uh, Jeannie, we only have about a minute left, but I want to know, I need to know what you are going to be watching for this week. And I'm sorry you both got wet on your weekend. Um, I am watching for Secretary of State Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov are going to be meeting in the Arctic Council, and they may discuss a possible summit between President Joe Biden and President, President Vladimir Putin. I think if that happens, that is going to be fascinating. So I am watching Blinken on his trip. Yes, and we definitely saw Blinken, I think, begin uh, today on his trip, uh, definitely talking uh, to individuals who are over from the U.S. and over serving in Europe, as well as talking. I think he did quickly also mention uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, saying that like people everywhere, uh, both groups, Palestinians and Israelis, have the right to live in safety and security. So we'll continue to really watch what Secretary Blinken's message is while he's in Europe. Obviously, the relationship 
relationship that the U.S. has with its allies is such a key part to the Biden administration and to how they are approaching the bigger international issues. Well, that is it for today's show. Huge thanks, as always, to Jeannie for joining us and to my co-host, the one, the only Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.